One of the surprises offered by study of colonial Australia is discovering how this byproduct of the old world, alongside our prison origins, became so interested in respectability so fast. Take Broken Hill that we visited earlier this year, a very lively centre in its time, in an inhospitable country that grew out of massive mining. It may not have had a local water supply, but it did have a plentiful supply of professionals. Lawyers, engineers, teachers, journalists, doctors, so many accountants that by 1905 they'd started their own professional association. My next guest says Australia was settled during a profound moment of change in the world of work which saw the rise of professionalisation in the British middle classes and this was transmitted to the colonies where men and women saw themselves creating orderly and moral societies on the frontiers. I shall let Dr Hannah Forsyth explain. She's traced the rise and fall of the professional class in the Anglophone world in her new book, Virtue Capitalists, and she joins me now. Hello there. Great to be here, Geraldine. Thanks for having me. Hannah... Set out, please, the backdrop for the rise of the professional middle class in the English-speaking world. We're talking around about 1870, aren't we? Yes, it's a kind of combination of a couple of different things that converge at the same time. By about 1870, the British middle class is spread throughout the world as part of the processes of empire. And they're really kind of in charge in Mm -hmm. Australia and New Zealand and Canada. And leftover of that in the United States who've separated from Britain but are still part of the same network of people thinking about many of the same ideas about how to build a good new civilization. From about the 1870s and 80s, the City of London, the world's great financial centre, is flush with cash. They're sitting on top of the Industrial Revolution. Profit is at an all-time high. Now, anybody with money knows you can't just let money sit around. You want to invest it in something that will produce a return. And all these settler colonies are looking like fabulous places to send this money. Railways are building, that sort of thing. But you think about who has to facilitate all of this. So surveyors are surveying the land, actively removing it from Aboriginal people. Engineers are designing towns and bridges and roads and buildings. Buildings. Lawyers are facilitating the transfer of property. Accountants are keeping track of it all. Teachers are making sure the children are going to grow up civilised. And nurses and doctors are helping to make sure that under the industrialising conditions that are going on, people are going to be healthy enough to work. And the point you are making, I think, in your book is that this professionalisation, and we will maybe need to define it, Mm. meant that the working class people who'd previously fulfilled some of these roles, like a local woman, for instance, who knew how to deliver a baby, that in effect they were sidelined. What's the impact in your view about this process? While they're building new professions, they're deciding on standards that they want to be maintained. Now, that seems completely reasonable, except it's also a process of enclosure in almost every case. So for the nurses, as you mentioned, they're actively pushing out people that they're characterising using the the Dickens character, Sairi Gamp. So these working class women who traditionally looked after people in their homes when they were sick or helped deliver babies or looked helped mothers when they had babies were being denigrated, really. But the same applied to Chinese medicine, 
to other kinds of herbal medicine, to um, Indigenous medicine. All of those things were being pushed out of healthcare in the process of building those standards. And same applies to other types of teaching and so on. But at the same time, of course, there was a, a real yield for that too, wasn't there? Yeah. Like much better hygiene, better recovery rates, people weren't dying as fast, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a yield for that. There was a reason for it, wasn't Certainly there? in nursing, I think that, that, that there is evidence that their attention to things like purity, duty and courage and so on kind of made for better nursing. Medicine actually took a little while before things became much better. They made a lot of claims for themselves before they were really true, which helps us to see the ways that this they thought that their class status and their race, gender sometimes, status was part of what made them actually better at this. What were the key differences, would you say, from this emerging class that distinguished them from both the working class or, I might add, the aristocrats? Well, look, I mean, the British middle class that had spread all the way through the empire actively thought that they were better than the aristocratic classes. They they were more moral. They worked harder. So none of that kind of dissolute old corruption, they didn't want that to be permeating the new world that where they hoped to build something better. So they're kind of morally distinguishing themselves from both the aristocracy and also the working class who they suspect of being dissolute themselves. So, you know, kind of there's a good working class and a deserving poor, but but there's also the a lot of poor people that are not. Yes. Well, I mean, we can all remember middle-class morality, Eliza Doolittle's <laughs> terrible father, Alfred, who accused her of becoming trapped by this rather sort of tame, uh, very sort of po-faced middle-class morality exemplified by um, Rex Higgins. Yeah, yeah. And so those kinds of ideas then become part of what the professions think that they are about. So they structure it into the ways that they do the work. So the ways that you're teaching, the values that you're bringing to nursing or to, to medicine or to accountancy are drawn from that older, longer sense of middle-class morality that but then become formalised into standards of work. But was that really used out in, you know, the plains of Australia? Because I would have thought it was a much more pragmatic sense, particularly in those particular times of Australia. I'm a bit surprised that you think it was so riddled with values. Yeah, it's really striking the ways that they talk about this. And in some ways, because of the frontier in all of those settler colonies, that's where the anxiety around civilization is at its pointiest. So the you know when they're appointing the first school teacher to Broken Hill for instance, they're making sure that he's a sober upright Christian man, he's single and or if he was married that the marriage is of a particular stability. They're paying very close attention to the morals, not just the qualifications of each person. Now your work focuses on the settler colonies of of Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States. Does it also apply for instance to the colonies of the French or the Spanish or the Dutch, just in Indonesia, just up the road, as it were. Is, is it different there? Yeah, I think it is different. And it's, it's partly different because of the type of colonisation. This kind of Anglo-settler colonisation that built a ve- such a large global network interested in the same ideas resulted in them investing all of that cash that was also coming out of the City of London into what they cared about. So because they cared so deeply about human capital, about education, in all of those places, education and therefore all the other professions grew faster than than really anywhere else initially. Proportionally than anywhere mm. else. 
And what about attitudes to Indigenous people? Like you've alluded to it. Now, is it what we would expect to see or is there a bit more variety? Oh, it's very complex because the class that is becoming professionals are deeply moral, I think, in, and authentically moral for the most part. That doesn't mean that everything they did had moral consequences, but they wanted good things. And so often that included wanting good things for Indigenous peoples. But we need to acknowledge that because they're the ones also building the settler colony, they're responsible for much of the dispossession. They're also responsible for things like suppressing Indigenous languages in schools, for removing children from Because families. they had a very patronising view because they were so convinced that the British civilization conferred a higher exactly. end aspirations, didn't they? So, I mean, this is the trouble. People didn't quite understand the ramifications of what they were doing all the time. That's right. So two things were happening, I think. One was that they were building a hierarchy through society that included hierarchies based on race. And some of that hierarchy looked like it was really fair because it was based on educational standards and things like that. But it became really entangled with other kinds of hierarchy like those on gender and race. And the other thing is then that, of course, when decolonisation starts to happen globally, at the end of the Second World War, all of those hierarchies start to be drawn into question by the professional class and they have a, a moral crisis as a result. Oh, that's your thesis as well, that the, this professional class starts to wonder about itself. Yes. It was um, kind of really interesting in the archives, which were the records and journals of each professional association. The 1950s and much of the 1960s is very, very boring. 1970s, the whole thing explodes where it becomes evident, starting with teaching really, where desegregation as part of civil rights in the United States exposed that teaching was reinforcing hierarchies that were racist in classrooms. Um, and so all of the professions began to rethink what their hierarchies were really all about um, and to begin to think about ways that they might be able to turn those upside well, down. Well, this is a postmodernism thing and some say that that's a, a boon and some say it's an absolute cancer because it uh, takes away people's ability to come to conclusions and it, that it, it just sort of subjects them to constant, constant self-review, which is actually unhelpful. You know, I don't think we would want to return to a time where nursing was so fundamentally feminine that the caps and veils were there to reflect mm. those ideas ideas of femininity and um, and continuing the process of decolonising professions mm. is probably important. I don't think um, I want to return to a time, though, though, when people don't believe in credentials. <laughs> no, that's interesting too, isn't it? That, I, mean, I think I, I do swallow, I mean, maybe I'm a subject <laughs> of what you're saying, but I the business of improving oneself through education is a very important thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been teaching for the past 10 years because I believe in the importance of education. I've dedicated the book to teachers and to the, those who've taught me, and I think that it has enormous potential. It also, though, has enormous potential for harm, doesn't it? And that's that's structured into the way that teaching has been performed. So I, I guess I would like us to be continually rethinking the way that we do this. What do you mean potential for harm? If we think about what's included and what's excluded in the things that we teach like that initial suppression of Indigenous languages, what we think makes for important knowledge. Those things have been structured often by the hierarchies that the profession brought into being that were kind of self-serving, not necessarily consciously self-serving, but that they were. Um, and so by continually 
rethinking the way that we're doing each of these things to be able to see how do First Nations people see this? Does it put you very sceptical of expertise, which is another big debate, or not? That's a great question, Geraldine, because this is where things really go wrong in the 1980s, I think, where it's not really necessarily a direct response to the 1970s moral crisis, but we get a split between the professional and the managerial in the 1980s for reasons related more to globalisation, I think, rather than decolonisation, that results in a managerial class that's much more sceptical of expertise than ever before. Really, those had been allied before. But now this kind of scepticism of that expertise is really an attempt to depower what had been professional expertise that became very powerful in the middle part of the 20th century. I do not subscribe to that. I think that this is an active de-skilling of expertise um, and moving those things underneath the control of a managerial class whose primary goal is a kind of abstracted success. This is full of um, (laughs) further debate. Thank you very much indeed, Hannah, for joining us. Thanks, Geraldine. Great to be here. Hannah Forsyth, the author of Virtue Capitalists, uh, which is published by Cambridge University Press. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.